Our reading today is by James Baldwin, the great literary voice of the mid-20th century. While not a marching activist, Baldwin emerged as one of the leading voices in the civil rights movement for his compelling work on race and class, while also digging into issues of homosexuality long before the issue was openly discussed. An excerpt. In the church I come from, which is not at all the same church to which white Americans belong, we were counseled from time to time to do our first works over. Go back to where you started or as far back as you can. Examine all of it. Travel your road again and tell the truth about it. Sing or shout or testify or keep it to yourself, but know whence you came. In the book of Revelation, the story goes that Jesus appeared to John of Patmos and commanded him to write seven churches in Asia Minor. To the church of Ephesus, he writes, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you are weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. This is the Bible verse that Baldwin is quoting in the text we just heard. We were counseled from time to time to do our first works over. The letter from Revelation says to do our first works over begins with repentance, going beyond our small-mindedness into the great mind. That's what repent actually means translated from the Greek word metanoia to go into the great mind. So to repent and do the works you did at first means going back to the beginning, re-examining everything with a deeper awareness, moving from our finite mind of comparing and contrasting scarcity and fear, either-or paradigms, and opening into the great mind. Theologian Cynthia Bourgeau calls the great mind the non-dual knowingness of the heart. The non-dual knowingness of the heart. The heart is our spiritual organ by which we use all our ways of knowing, intuition, wisdom, a sense of unity, creative, creative faculties, symbols. The knowingness of the heart is seeing and living from the perspective of wholeness and the holy. When James Baldwin quotes this verse from Revelation, he was talking about what we have to do to actually tear the walls down that divide us racially, economically, spiritually. Go back to where you started or as far back as you can, he says. Examine all of it. Travel your road again. But this time, let it move you into a deeper awareness. 
sing or shout or testify or keep it to yourself, but know with the knowingness of the heart. This is our way to a whole and just world. Four years ago, I began to do my first works over. I didn't know I was doing it at the time, but I was beginning to reclaim my wholeness by going back to the beginning and examining all of it. My journey began with 10 other people. We ranged in ages from 19 to 75. Two people identified as Jewish, three identified as African American, the rest of us called ourselves white. We had come together to participate in an anti-racism study and dialogue circle. We met twice a week for two months to read articles, to talk deeply about our lives, to listen deeply to one another's stories, to search our hearts, and to come into true relationship with one another. The one promise that we swore to keep was that no one would leave the circle. No matter how hot it got, no matter how painful it got, no matter how uncomfortable it got, everyone agreed, we are all going to stay in the circle. At first, this anti-racism circle didn't seem all that uncomfortable to me. And then two things happened. And I'm a little embarrassed to talk about one of them, but I'm going to do it because I think white people have to start moving through that thing stuck in the throat that Larry talked about, that bile that rises up from our stomach and shuts us up so we can remain in the white camp with all its privileges and all its debilitating shame and at a huge cost to our brothers and sisters of color. So, so here's the story. The leader of the group showed us a cartoon from the 60s. It actually was something I had watched as a kid. Three African slave characters are playing music on anything they can find, a wash tub, a broom, a few other things. And their lips are huge. They take up most of the bottom portions of their face. Their hair was tied up in rags. The female character had huge breasts that bounced with the music, and the men had huge feet that slapped the ground as they all danced around singing and bebopping to rhythms that they were creating on their makeshift instruments. At the end, the the facilitator asked each one of us to comment on the cartoon. And I said something like, at first I want to laugh. This is the kind of cartoon I watched every Saturday morning as a kid. And it made me laugh. But it's making me uncomfortable to watch it in the same room with people of color. I said something like that. The person who responded next was African American. I want to throw up she said. Immediately, I felt my face flush. I had spoken honestly, but it was this kind of intellectualized response. 
I had not given a thought to what that cartoon would mean to the person sitting next to me or what it really had communicated to me as a child. I felt guilty and ashamed that I had experienced pleasure from something that caused my colleague so much pain. Now, this is a little hard to explain, but what I started to put together was how my whiteness, this being white, fosters a kind of intellectualized, detached kind of response to images, situations, etc., that are actually devastating and dehumanizing to all of us, but especially people of color. And I was, I was starting to see with my heart And I felt betrayed by this culture that enlists all of us at a very young age in a racial construct that says some of us get our full humanity and some of us are reduced to cartoon characters from which white people can all have a good laugh. And it all hinges on what color of skin you have. And if you think those kinds of cartoons are a thing of the past, watch Toy Story 3 and see what it is communicating about Latino men. I wanted to leave the circle on that day. I was so ashamed. But I made a promise, and so I stayed. The next thing that broke my vision open, that pushed me to re-examine all of it was the juxtaposition of two readings. First was a reading exposing race as the biggest, most destructive lie ever told. This thing called race is something that some rich guys cooked up in the late 1600s in Virginia. It's an absolute fabrication. They made it up to make sure that indentured servants from England and indentured servants and enslaved peoples from Senegal and the Congo would not collaborate and rebel against the ruling elite. Race is something they made up to protect their economic ventures. Today, it is so hard to get our heads around this because this is now our definitive social construct. Oh, he's that uh, the black guy that works for the Metropolitan Council on Billing. Oh, yeah, 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 that, um, that Asian gal that works in human resources. What's her name? Oh, I, I love Kelly Clarkson. She sounds like she's black. It is probably more accurate to measure the size of our front teeth, to determine how closely we are related to one another biologically than to look at our skin color. Race is an absolute fiction with absolute devastating power. I wanted to leave the circle, but I made a promise. Then I read a series of articles on Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal initiatives and Harry Truman's Fair Deal programs of the 1930s and 40s. 
One author, Ira Katz Nelson, exploring this time period, called it when affirmative action was white. Now, to give you a little background, my mom grew up as a child of a sharecropper in western Nebraska. Her family was dirt poor, but her father picked up work as an auctioneer and a, a storekeeper, and they got by. My dad's father worked as a pipe fitter for the sewer district. So his family fared pretty well until my grandfather died. And then dad and my grandma were thrown into an economic tailspin that did not right itself until my dad joined the Air Force in World War II. Now, there were three governmental programs that my parents took advantage of to move from a lower economic class to the middle class in the 1940s through the 60s. Social Security, the GI Bill, and a loan from the Federal Housing Administration. The reason Ira Katznelson calls all of these programs and more affirmative action for the whites is because every single one of them were denied to people of color until after the Civil Rights Movement. After the Civil Rights Movement. So Social Security allowed my mom and dad to put their money towards raising a family and buying a home, while Social Security kept all my grandparents in their homes, for the most part, until they died. Social Security is a way that families built wealth over the course of generations. It was a godsend for working people, except for those employed in agriculture or as domestic household workers. Southern legislators demanded that those occupations be excluded from Social Security benefits along with minimum wage, unemployment compensation, and protection of the right of workers to join labor unions in order to preserve the Southern way of life. The predominant occupation of black and brown-skinned people in the 1930s and 40s was in agriculture or as domestic workers. No Social Security benefits were granted to them until after the Civil Rights Movement. The GI Bill was a tremendous success for veterans. It paid for my dad's college education after returning from the war, which meant that he could get a job as a math teacher. But if you were a GI of color, you were out of luck. Katz Nelson writes, written under Southern auspices, the GI Bill was deliberately designed to accommodate Jim Crow. Now I quote from a New York Times article by Nick Kotz. Thousands of black veterans in the South and the North as well were denied housing and business loans as well as admission to whites-only colleges and universities. They were also excluded from job training programs for careers in promising new fields like radio and electronic work, commercial photography, and mechanics. Instead, most African Americans were channeled toward traditional, low-paying, 
black jobs and small black colleges, which were pitifully underfinanced and ill-equipped to meet the needs of a surging enrollment of returning soldiers. Finally, my mom and dad bought a house with an FHA loan as a young couple in a nice little neighborhood in Denver. Until the civil rights movement, the Federal Housing Administration consistently denied mortgage loans to people based solely on their race and ethnicity. All of a sudden, my personal history did not look the way it used to look. I was going back to the beginning and seeing it differently. My simplistic notion of the American ethic, work hard and you will succeed, was turned on its ear. My parents moved from some very shaky economic beginnings to a stable middle-class lifestyle because they worked hard and they were white. That's the truth. I was so glad for my group as the scales began to fall from my eyes. I was glad that we were bound together by a promise that says no one leaves the circle, no matter how hard it gets. See, I don't think that we can go back and do our first works over alone, especially around racial justice. It's an endeavor that requires community, that requires everybody showing up with their variety of experiences. This being said, I don't think going back to our first works is the same work for everyone. It requires the same spiritual practices, but it's not the same work. It requires the spiritual practice of metanoia or repentance, of moving into the issue with the knowingness of the heart. It requires the spiritual practice of openness and truth-telling. But from there, our work is different. Our work will be shaped by our life experiences, and our life experiences are profoundly shaped by the color of our skin. Now, knowing that we are in this work together, but our work is different, knowing that that's where I wanted this whole sermon to get to, we are all in this together, but our work is different, I decided to query some members of this congregation and ask them two questions. Knowing that we have all been shaped by race in different ways, what would you say is your work in racial justice? And the second question, what feels like a message of hope? Here's what I heard. My work is to try to live my life as my best self amid social and economic inequities that are so emotionally and spiritually draining for me. 
My hope is that something visible, identifiable, and promoted will come about that makes this church a spiritual home for everybody. My work is to make space for everyone, to create a sense of belonging for each person, to be an ally. I am super excited about the leadership that is being shown in this church for the first time around this issue. My work is to push against my internalized colonization. I do this by working on immigration issues, by keeping track of what's happening around the nation. My hope is to see more people of color move into positions of leadership in this church. My work as a man, as a person of color, is not turning a blind eye and really engaging in the conversation, trying to remain open even when there's a lot of pushback. My work is to love people. I find a lot of hope in that the first president my young daughter will remember will be Barack Obama, a black man. My work is to be conscious that the work is not done. We just had four white students hanging a black doll from a noose at Washburn High School, for heaven's sakes. My hope Well, my hope is with my grandchildren. My work is to keep learning and staying conscious. I want to continue to form genuine relationships with people and organizations of color and to let go of any preconceived notions. My work is to show up. I know a lot of people talk about hope lying with the children, but I'm actually hopeful about all the adults I see really digging in around this issue. Now, I am aware that this is not your typical Martin Luther King Jr. sermon. I have not quoted from his great speeches or read portions of his now famous letter that he wrote in the margins of newspapers and on sheets of toilet paper from his Birmingham jail cell. I am aware that I'm not talking about the great sacrifices that were made by King or others or told stories about the many ordinary people who put their bodies on the line again and again in order to blow the lid off this entire system of brutality and inequities. But I have made a commitment to honor Martin Luther King Jr., not by simply telling his story one Sunday out of the year, but by living into his message every day of the week. That's what I think my work is. And I think that's what our work is. I think that's what we're beginning at First Universalist Church. We are gathering, we are talking about race, we are studying, we are showing up. We are working on immigration issues, we are talking to our friends, We're going back to where we started or as far back as we can and re-examining all of it. Traveling our road again and telling the truth about it. 
we are beginning to say we are in the circle and we will not leave no matter how hot it gets, no matter how painful it gets, no matter how uncomfortable it gets. We are all going to stay in the circle. And my friends, that gives me hope. Let us sing or shout or testify, but let us know from whence we have come. Let us see with the knowingness of the heart and make justice with our bodies. May it be so. And amen.